Hello, everybody, and welcome back once again to Dirty Sexy History. My name is Jessica Kale, and for a historian, I watch a lot of news. I can't help it. History is unfolding all around us, and every day, fake history is used to justify disastrous policy decisions while real history is removed from schools and libraries across the country. It can be frustrating to watch all of this happening in real time when you know very well that all this has happened before. History doesn't repeat, but it rhymes, and we all know the words to this song, don't we? America is undergoing a crisis of bad history. Historians are regularly accused of being too political and indoctrinating students by speaking the truth. Their work is contested or buried in favor of a nostalgic ideal of a past that never existed. Meanwhile, current events and regressive policies echo the past with nauseating frequency. As historians, what can we do about it apart from tweeting ignored warnings like Cassandra predicting the fall of Troy? Well, that's what we're talking about today. In this very special episode of Dirty Sexy History, I'm talking to Princeton history professors Dr. Kevin Cruz and Dr. Julian Zelizer, contributors to CNN and MSNBC, and editors of the New York Times bestseller, Myth America. Historians take on the biggest legends and lies about our past. This is a big episode and we cover a lot of ground. Everything from the Southern strategy and civil rights to Ronald Reagan book bans and the Trump indictment. We talk about how America was founded on myths, how those myths persist, and what we, as historians and fans of history, can do about it. We also talk about how history is inherently political and, yes, even revisionist, and why that's actually a good thing. What we're doing this week is a little different, but it's important, and I hope you enjoy it. All right, everybody, my guests today are Kevin Cruz and Julian Zelizer, editors of the new book, Myth America. Historians take on the biggest legends and lies about our past. Welcome to the show. We're so glad to have you. Thanks so much for having us. So in Myth America, you write that America is currently undergoing a crisis of bad history as politicians and pundits use distorted ideas about the past to justify some truly disastrous decisions. The first example that springs to mind, for me at least, was the Dobbs ruling where Justice Alito argued that the right to abortion is not deeply rooted in history when in fact abortion was both common and legal during the 18th century. What are some other examples of this bad history? How are they using it and why are they doing it? You see it all the time. You see it on particular uh, political issues or legal cases um, where uh, history that's not what most professional historians uh, or professional teachers are going to be dealing with in the classroom suddenly becomes a basis uh, for decision making. We see this a lot with gun control. Um, where historians really push back um, against interpretations of kind of what the Second Amendment meant and, you know, what guns looked like in the period that happened compared to today. But you also see it in a kind of broader level, which was important in us thinking about the book. Uh, at the end of uh, President Trump's term, uh, it ends with the 1776 Commission, um, which is a very pointed uh, interpretation, the report that comes out of this commission of American history um, that's based on 
you know, not simply very biased or partisan spins on history that really take aim at, you know, politics today, but things that are just fundamentally wrong. So from the particulars um, to just broad narratives like this, it's become quite pervasive. Uh, and most recently, we're seeing this play out in Florida, um, where Governor DeSantis is, is, is pushing a very strong agenda that removes key historical texts and removes key historical issues from the classroom. And our goal um, was to really start a conversation, not to end it, um, by bringing some of the best historians to show what they know and show what they do on, on many of these topics. Absolutely. Is there anything you'd like to add, Kevin? Yeah, I mean, the, the, so the collection is, is filled with a lot of different examples of this, but one that leaps to mind immediately about the way in which bad history distorts our, our sense of the present is a, is a piece by our colleague Glenda Gilmore, uh, who wrote about the myth of the good civil rights protest. This is something we see every year in which uh, there's a version of what Martin Luther King did that is trotted out that is uh, really kind of simplified and sterilized. Um, uh, according to many politicians, uh, King effectively said one sentence is in his entire career, uh, the content of the character line from the March on Washington speech, and that was it. And so as Glenda notes, the vision we have of King and his protests is one that is A, simply focused on legalized uh, segregation, which is now gone. Uh, it was a protest that uh, they pretend was uh, widely popular and not at all uncontroversial. Uh, and that was something that didn't challenge the norms of the day. Uh, and didn't go beyond that. Uh, didn't talk about poverty or militarism or all the other things King talked about. And so they've, they've simplified and reduced King's message. Well, why does that matter? I mean, in one way, it might seem good. Everyone's praising Martin Luther King Jr. today. That's good. But they're praising a very distorted view of him. And they're praising it in order to uh, create a sense of distance between the civil rights protests of the 1960s and the ones today. So they're holding King up as a counterpoint to Black Lives Matter, when in fact, in both in terms of the things they're complaining about and the way they're going about making those protests, uh, they're actually very close. So this false image of the past is used to kind of drive a wedge between the past and the present. And there really is a lot of continuity there, a lot of lessons we can draw. Mm, absolutely. So more and more, we're seeing the rejection of objective truth by the Republican Party, the same people who accuse historians like yourselves, I'm sure, of rewriting history and move to eliminate history that challenges their world free view from school curriculums, as you mentioned. So how did the Republicans become, in the words of John Rogers, the anti-fact guys? What hope do historians have of fighting the epidemic of fake news? Well, I mean, I think uh, we we can't pin the crisis to just one thing. Uh, part of it is a radicalization that's taken place in the Republican Party over decades, really at least since the 1980s, um, if not longer, uh, where the willingness to engage in um, the most aggressive partisan tactics, which includes saying anything, uh, has become normative. Newt Gingrich, I've written about, is one of the pioneers of, of this, where language matters politically, but the uh, truth behind a lot of assertions is, is less relevant and, and should be less of a guardrail in terms of what Republicans do. And we've just seen this accelerate over the years. Uh, we've also seen a conservative media uh, ecosystem on online, on television, uh, and on social media um, that is quite comfortable with putting out um, not just information that's a little false or not just information that's a little skewed, 
but things that are just not true. Uh, and as we're seeing in the a recent case involving Fox News, the people in the institutions are fully aware of what they're doing. Uh, and they're still going on to say it for various reasons, some commercial, some political. So uh, just taking those two uh, kind of major developments, they, they've come together to create a really, you know, distinct kind of uh, Republican Party. Uh, and history has been one of the victims. And again, what Kevin and I uh, are arguing isn't that you can't dispute history or have very different interpretations of what happened uh, as you assemble your evidence. What we're trying to uh, go after are people out there uh, who are saying things that are just totally disconnected from what we do know as a result of research in archives, as a result of extensive reading um, and and we think that's where you get into dangerous ground um, in this new political world. Mm, yeah, definitely. Was there anything you'd like to add, Kevin? I would only add that history is uh, a, a constant process of of rewriting, of revising. Uh, we ask new questions. We find new answers in the archives as we keep digging. Um, and that is a constant process of perfecting, of, of bettering, of, yeah, revising our understanding of the past. So all of the history is essentially revisionist um, if we're doing it right. But as Julian noted, the, the really fundamental difference and the alarming thing here between the current moment we're in and past fights over history is it used to be we would argue about which facts deserved more emphasis, right? Uh, in the great constellation of evidence we had, where do we really think uh, uh, um, um, the, the real power lies, the real causal uh, uh, um, 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 uh, relationship can be shown. And what we have today is instead of saying, which of these facts matter more, which facts are even facts, right? We've got people who are presenting just a, a version of, of American history that is almost wholly invented out of nothing. Uh, and that is really alarming. That's something uh, I think remarkably new. Mm. Yes, it's very concerning. So some of these myths that you cover, uh, such as that of the vanishing Indian or the seemingly always imminent threat of immigration, uh, both of which are addressed in this book, they've been around since the country was founded. So how have these myths influenced the country over time? And is it fair to say to some extent America was built on these myths? Fair to say that, uh, yes, 100%. I think they influence public policy. They influence public consciousness. So uh, some of the uh, myths about immigration, why it happens, how it happens, have uh, first been interwoven into various periods of public policy, which have pushed the nation toward restriction uh, and restrictionist uh, agendas. So uh, ideas about uh, the alleged dangers that uh, immigrants to this country pose relative to other uh, people who are already here, or the reasons why immigrants uh, in general, are coming to the nation, have served really as a foundation for legislative efforts to close the doors uh, or to in, in implement uh, punitive policies uh, against either newcomers or, or people who are um, successfully, unsuccessfully at the cusp of getting into our country. And then in, in parts of the nation, not all of it, some of these myths that have endured for a long time, even among people who themselves immigrated or whose families immigrated to the country, uh, creates a 
kind of dangerous image of the immigrant uh, and whoever is filling that uh, you know, um, definition at a current moment uh, often has to struggle or live in a very unfavorable comment. And, and the myths about the history matter at that level as well. So these are not irrelevant uh, and they can even have very uh, concrete policy consequences. So one historic slogan currently resurfacing is America first, which is covered in Sarah Churchwell's excellent essay. So can you tell us a little bit about the historical origins of America first and why it's significant that we're hearing it again? Yeah. So when Trump started using this phrase, it set off a lot of alarm bells for not just historians, but I think anyone who has any familiarity with uh, 20th century history. America first was very famously a slogan used by the second Ku Klux Klan. Uh, and it was used again by isolationists who wanted to keep America uh, out of the Second World War uh, about a decade or so later, the famous America First Committee. And now on the surface, America First may not seem like a bad slogan. Uh, I think every uh, country around the world would probably think that their own country deserves uh, priorities on their list of, of things to do. But what's important about the way in which the phrase was employed in that historical context is that the people who did it had a very particular idea of what counted as America, and who counted as Americans. Uh, and so both of these groups are groups that were effectively white nationalist, but the Klan certainly was. Uh, but uh, but so first was, was the America First Committee. There was an idea that uh, the, the Jews uh, of Europe should be written off and there was no need to, to ride to their defense. Uh, uh, there's some deeply anti-Semitic leaders in there, Charles Lindbergh, other people like that. So it's a very exclusionary, very narrow reading of America. So when that phrase got picked up again by Donald Trump, a lot of people saw the parallels to the past in which his vision of America, like their vision before him, was one very narrowly drawn uh, and, and had some, uh, so, some highly alarming overtones of racism and anti-Semitism. So in Karen Cox's chapter on Confederate monuments, she writes about the evolution of the myth of the lost cause and that it was, quote, never tied to factual history, but was always about an alternate reality. So that about sums it up. So why is the myth of the lost cause so stubborn? How did the antebellum South become so romanticized? Well, I mean, I think it it has perpetually fit uh, political agenda um, that has been underway since Reconstruction. I mean, after the Civil War and uh, and the aftermath of uh, the end of slavery, you have this huge push uh, for federal policies um, that will rectify what happened, will transform the way race relations existed in this country. And you've had a real push to stop this, to dismantle it ever since. Um, and uh, one manifestation that many people I'm sure have read about uh, are the Jim Crow laws uh, that are on the books um, in, in the Deep South and restrict voting uh, and create uh, disenfranchisement socially, politically, economically. And the, the argument about the lost cause of Confederate monuments all were part of an effort uh, to bolster um, this fight against racial justice. And I don't think it endures just naturally. Um, uh, obviously, there's going to be uh, parts of the electorate that just believe in it because it sounds good and, and it kind of uh, satisfies some yearning. But more importantly, and this is what Karen Cox shows, it's part of a political mobilization. And 
That's why when Confederate statues or statues memorializing the Confederacy have become such an issue uh, in recent years, it's totally misplaced uh, to just treat these as some form of um, you know, symbolic nod uh, toward what the South is, as opposed to an effort uh, to really protect uh, and, and claim the legitimacy of a Southern way in life uh, that led to racial inequality and uh, white supremacy. And um, I think she does a really good job at, at showing what those have been about from the start. So, Kevin, in your chapter on the Southern strategy, you explain how the Democratic and Republican parties essentially swapped positions with regards to race over time, with Republicans changing from the party of Lincoln to a party that, under Donald Trump, pandered to white nationalists and emboldened racists across the country. So how did this happen? To what extent does racism still influence politics today? Well, it's a, it's a long story, uh, which is why I wrote a whole chapter about it. But the, the thumbnail version is that uh, this is a long process that really begins almost immediately in the in the aftermath of, of, of Lincoln's era, as both the Republican Party relaxes its commitment to civil rights, but also the Democratic Party undergoes some serious transformations. Uh, and it kind of happens in a backwards way. First, African Americans move from the party of Lincoln to uh, to the uh, to the party of Franklin Roosevelt in the 1930s, not because of any changes that the Democrats have done on civil rights. It's wholly because African Americans are benefiting from the New Deal economically, like large numbers of Americans. So they switch their votes. But once they're in the Democratic ranks, well, suddenly both parties have a new calculus, right? And so Democrats start to realize that African Americans are a constituency that they need in the North. Uh, and they're willing to make some concessions to them. And so they slowly change from being the party that had long been committed to white supremacy, segregation, slavery before that. They start to make some changes. Uh, and the real tipping point comes in 1948, when Harry Truman and the Democrats uh, really embrace civil rights formally for the first time. This sparks the famous uh, walkout of the Dixiecrats, who go down into defeat in 1984. But the fact that they broke away from the party shows they're up for grabs. And so just as Democrats start to move in towards uh, embracing civil rights in the 50s and 60s, Republicans realize that they can start to win over these white Southern conservatives who agree with them on virtually everything else uh, uh, if they can just neutralize this race issue. So starting right after the Dixiecrats, I found the uh, leaders of the Republican Party, Senator Carl Munt, uh, Gal Gabrielson, who's the head of the RNC in 1952, they're touring the South saying effectively, Dixiecrats believe in states' rights. Republicans believe in states' rights. We should get together and, and, and join. Now, the leader of this movement is Barry Goldwater, uh, who was making these speeches throughout the 50s. And when he gets the presidential nomination in 1964, the party goes all in on this, following Goldwater's plan to, quote, go hunting where the ducks are. By that, he means to really appeal to Southern white conservatives. And so it's a process that really, again, takes place over decades. And it isn't even completed until uh, really uh, the 21st century at the state and local level. But it's a process that um, uh, is 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 out in the open. Uh, and it's talked about at the time by journalists. Uh, uh, Nixon and Goldwater talk about it in their memoirs. Their aides talk about it in their public records. Their strategists are talking about this in real time to the press. So this is not a secret. And, and what's remarkable, and this is an example of kind of the creating of new facts we talked about. Ten years ago, I never would have thought that this would be included in a book about popular myths, because it was widely accepted. Leaders of the Republican Party 
in the era of George W. Bush apologized for the Southern strategy. Ken Melman, Michael Steele, two chairmen of the RNC apologized for it. And there was an effort in that era to turn the page, to say, look, we're not that old Republican party of Richard Nixon. We're a diverse party. We've got Condoleezza Rice, Colin Powell, Alberto Gonzalez. We're doing immigration reform. There was, I think, a sincere effort on the part of those Republicans to turn the page. Well, we got to the Trump era, and instead of turning the page from that racist past, there was a reinvention of it. And so instead of apologizing for the Southern strategy, a new generation of partisans decided to pretend that it never happened. Uh, and so they just said this was all made up. Well, it wasn't made up. And so that's the purpose of, of my uh, my chapter, which is really one of the simplest ones in the volume, because I'm just basically saying, no, really, this happened. Uh, and it happened in great detail. Mm, absolutely. It was, it was really fascinating. And then, uh, Julian, I want to ask about yours as well. So your chapter discusses the Reagan revolution. Uh, so, of course, you know, Ronald Reagan is a pretty polarizing figure even now. Uh, and a couple people, you know, still hold him up as a hero. Um, and his, pre uh, his presidency was seen as kind of a golden age of conservatism. But at the time, as you mentioned, he was actually incredibly unpopular. So the Reagan era seems to mark a change in the American psyche, a transition from the New Deal and Great Society eras to the kind of Gordon Gecko greed is good hellscape, right? So what were these years actually like? And why do people seem to miss them so much? Yeah, I mean, he has he's, he's certainly an iconic figure uh, in American politics and in conservative politics. He's held up uh, today as a real model, even by those critical of, of uh, the former president, President Trump, as as what uh, conservatism could be at its most uh, uh, in its best form. And one of the important parts of, I think, the Reagan uh, myth is that Reaganism swept through the country uh, with a kind of totality that wiped away uh, the legacies of the New Deal and Great Society and, and set the terms for debate today. Uh, and, and I don't uh, dispute that he wasn't a very influential president. Uh, his ideas certainly had a, a big impact um, on American politics. But I try to kind of take on two different elements of the myth that I think are misleading. Uh, one is this idea that uh, Reaganism was a revolution, that it really kind of totally transformed the country. And I go through different areas of politics and policy, from domestic policy to foreign policy, where you could see that there was lots of resistance to what Reagan was doing, lots of pushback. And Reagan ultimately was unsuccessful at putting into place many of the promises that he made uh, in, in 1981. And the reason that's important is it gives a different picture of where this country was then. And, and I think right through today, it remains relevant that the ideas and policies of liberalism remained very popular and interwoven into the American polity. Uh, not that conservatism has not been extremely relevant, but it was layered over and coexisted with another part of the nation and its politics that we can't simply forget uh, through this myth of Reagan. And secondly, as you said, I try to highlight just how contentious he was. There's this idea that everyone loved Reagan and everyone loved Reaganism. Uh, even work on Democrats in Congress recently has con continually highlighted the ways in which like Tip O'Neill, who was Speaker of the House, got along so well with Reagan, they could drink a beer after arguing all day together. Uh, but that really doesn't capture the level of vitriol and opposition and anger that existed 
um, not just among activists, but among mainstream democratic politicians toward what Reagan was doing. So Reagan didn't settle all the questions many people think he settled. Uh, and I think the uh, debates and fissures that existed when he was president uh, are very relevant because they continue to this day and give a more nuanced picture of the country's politics, if you understand it this way. Mm. Absolutely. And you also mentioned in that chapter Newt Gingrich, who you wrote about in your book, Burning Down the House. So how did he change the Republican Party and how is his influence still felt today? Yeah, he's very important. And uh, I, I make an argument that uh, during his rise to power in the 80s uh, and culminating in 1994, when he becomes Speaker of the House, he introduces and legitimizes a new kind of partisanship, a smash mouth partisanship, meaning you can be as partisan as you want and you could ignore any kind of guardrails. You can put aside other concerns like governing. And he made an argument explicitly. It's a little like the Southern strategy. It's not some big revelation. He wrote it down in memos and he would send it around uh, that Republicans had to essentially do anything to win. That was the priority. Uh, and if it ended up tying up the processes of government, so be it. Uh, and I think uh, the fact he existed is not novel. You've always had uh, kind of extremists, Senator Joe McCarthy in the 1950s as an example. But what was different with Gingrich is he becomes one of the leaders of the party and ultimately the leader of the party as Speaker of the House. And I think he kind of set the template that we see right through this day in Republican politics. It's not surprising someone like Donald Trump was quite influenced uh, by what he saw and heard in the 1990s and has remained someone who's followed Gingrich and I think in some ways followed his playbook more closely than many people realize. So a lot of people tend to think of history as something that happened in the distant past rather than something that we continue to live through. So what role can historians play in contextualizing current events for a broader audience? Uh, what purpose do you serve in the political landscape and, and should we even try? Well, I, I don't think we should overestimate our power. I mean, our, our, as I like to joke when I'm asked to make predictions about the future, my training's in hindsight. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but I do think there's something to that historians can bring to the table because we're constantly asking ourselves, have we been here before, right? Is this unprecedented? Is this new? Are there echoes of this in the past? And while the his past doesn't repeat, uh, it does, as, as Mark Twain famously said, rhyme uh, quite a lot. Uh, and so it helps us place our our are present in in a longer continuum and help explain it. So uh, Kathleen Ballou has a, a piece in uh, our, our book about, about insurrection, which puts January 6th uh, in a good deal of context. Uh, she notes that uh, while many people as January 6th was unfolding were remarking that it was unprecedented and shocking, she notes that there actually has been a history of, of insurrection in, Amer in the American past. And also the fact that uh, uh, those on the right on, on white nationalist circles have used the, the trope of the lone wolf of kind of the one-off exception to the rule uh, throughout their history when in fact uh, these events uh, are deeply informed by one another. So we've got to connect the dots uh, that they're trying to obscure. So that, that's just one small example of the way in which I, I think historians uh, can bring that understanding of the past to help us navigate the present. Mm, yeah, well said. Uh, did you want to add anything, Julian? Sure. Look, I mean, at one level, intellectually, we believe history is very important and uh, it's an important discipline. It's an important way of thinking that simply adds to the quality 
of our conversations. And I think it's, I, I always tell my students who are in public policy, like if you walk in a room uh, to negotiate a bill, you're better off if you have a sense of all the people in the room, who they were, where they came from, a sense of the issue and how it's played out in the past. And if you just walk in and know absolutely nothing and are taking guesses as you try to put something. And I think history uh, just matters uh, for not just politics, but for, for our lives. And we're better off and uh, for it uh, if we take it seriously, if we engage in real debates um, about the past and, and think, uh, use our kind of muscle uh, to think about how things that happened a long time ago have, have made who we are today. And then in politics, I mean, we've discussed over the course of this podcast, how much it can matter. We don't want to overemphasize what we're doing, but but history itself is always, always part of the way politics uh, unfolds, whether it's in Washington, uh, in a policymaking decision, or whether it's in the electorate, in terms of how we think of who, who our leaders should be, or what kinds of issues should we focus on. Uh, and so we don't want to uh, remove ourselves from this conversation, uh, nor are we dissuaded by the immense challenges, as you rightly point out, that one faces by trying to push for more accurate, uh, substantive, and grounded discussions. Because if we do that, um, then you cede the public sphere to people who are just going to push disinformation, misinformation, uh, and sometimes just outright lies. Um, and so the job of the historian in the classroom and the job of the historian who wants to go beyond the classroom is to keep pushing back on this. Maybe it's just a little bit uh, at a time, but that little bit can really matter. But that makes me feel so much better, honestly. <laughs> Everything's so bleak at the moment. All right, guys, if you're listening to this show, then I assume that you like other great history podcasts. So today I'm going to tell you about the Wild West Extravaganza. It is a history podcast that delves into the fascinating and often tumultuous world of the American Old West. From famous outlaws like Billy the Kid and Jesse James, to lawmen like Wyatt Earp and Wild Bill Hickok, to trailblazing pioneers and frontiersmen, this podcast tells the true stories of the real-life characters who shaped this iconic period in American history. So saddle up and discover the true history of the American frontier. The good, the bad, and the ugly. It's a journey you don't want to miss. So we are recording this on April 7th, and it has been quite a week. So just yesterday, the Tennessee House expelled two Democrat representatives for protesting gun violence in the wake of the terrible attack on Nashville's Covenant School. Is there any precedent for this? How can history help us to understand what's happening in Tennessee? Well, look, I'm, I'm from Nashville, so I've, I've been following this pretty closely. Um, it's it's outrageous what's happened. Uh, it's the first, uh, as I understand, the first partisan expulsion uh, in all of uh, Tennessee history, um, and the ones before uh, they had expelled had come for crimes. Uh, this Republican-run uh, legislature has gerrymandered itself into a three-to-one majority, uh, leaving Democrats with only the ability to speak, and apparently that's too much, too. Uh, they refused to boot uh, people who had been indicted for actual crimes. They had a longtime child molester serving with them. They did not decide to boot that person. Uh, yet two young black men who seized a microphone and answered the uh, the, the demands of uh, of school children protesting at the state 
uh, to be heard. Uh, that's what they booted. Uh, so it's ridiculous. Uh, and it is really a remarkably sad state uh, for the state of democracy in Tennessee. Um, and it's it's something that uh, I thought would never come back again in my lifetime. Um, certainly in the in, in the Jim Crow days, democracy in the South was uh, was pinched and uh, and 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 half good at best. Uh, but we're back there, uh, and it's it's really uh, it's really sad. Uh, and, and again, I think uh, we've got to remember that this is part of a long process of trying to suppress, trying to downplay, uh, trying to ignore. Uh, um, um, uh, votes of protest, voices of protest. Yeah. Can history give us any clues as to how we can fight this? I mean, it seems so much like we're moving backwards, but is there anything that we can learn from the past about how to deal with it? Well, I mean, continuing to protest, continuing to speak out, even though they've been removed from the House, they're going to still be leading these campaigns on the outside. They're going to still keep pressure on the issue. Uh, the courts, the federal government, could play a significant role here. I don't have much hope for the former, um, but the federal government, the Department of Justice could weigh in on this, I think in meaningful ways. Uh, they'll be accused of partisanship, but they'll be effectively doing their job. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think the important thing here is uh, is not to give up, not to keep calling this out. Um, we've seen uh, moments of overreach, uh, certainly in Southern state legislatures before, and they've been defeated by, um, by shining a spotlight on them. Uh, by having the rest of the country uh, not write these states off, but uh, but come deeply invested in them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Did you want to add anything, Julian? Yeah, I mean, look, the, the protests and mobilization matters. Um, there's uh, an endless history um, that, that both of us teach about and have studied uh, where you can see that the most effective response when things are broken, when politicians are doing things they shouldn't be doing, uh, where the kind of status quo is unacceptable, and you see uh, this, and you, um, I mean, anyone observing the direction of, of gun control uh, at some level will be saddened. You know, it's one shooting after another, and we move backwards in terms of doing anything. Uh, you can look at the history of the civil rights movement. You can look at the history of the anti-Vietnam War movement. You can look at the history of the conservative movement in the 70s and local organizing uh, connected to national organizations can be very powerful. Uh, and it's easy for despair, I think, to undermine uh, people doing that. Uh, but we see it. We saw it most recently uh, with guns, we saw it with the Parkland students who really put together something quite remarkable in 2018. It's had effect, not at the national level as much uh, as they hope, but certainly in different states where we've seen some response um, to gun violence uh, as an example. Uh, and I think, you know, this remains the best medicine uh, for moments like these when it becomes apparent that things are happening um, which really should be outside, um, you know, the normal of, of politics. And it doesn't mean we have to agree on everything, but there's certain things we can agree not to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, uh, the, well, the biggest story this week, Donald Trump was arrested and arraigned on 34 felony counts on Tuesday, a landmark day in American history. So only a few presidential terms ago, I mean, certainly within my lifetime, this would have seemed impossible. So as historians, how are you viewing the events of this week? 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, it's it's obviously the the bottom line. It's historic. Uh, a former president has been indicted. Uh, we have uh, not had this. We've also lived in an era. Uh, Kevin and I wrote an article a while back that came out of another book we did, Fault Lines, um, about how when uh, President Ford, uh, Gerald Ford, pardoned Richard Nixon in 1974, uh, he he set a template which was very controversial, where the choice would be what was perceived as uh, healing the country over achieving accountability by issuing that pardon. And we've been very reluctant as a nation um, to take action against presidents who are uh, abusing their power or uh, are charged with uh, criminal uh, activity. And this is interesting. It's an interesting moment in that it's a step in a very different direction. There's certainly controversy over the case itself. I'm not a lawyer and, and I'm, I'm following as much as I can. Um, we'll see how that plays out as the legal process unfolds. There's other cases, including in Georgia, that are still to come, but it is relevant. I think um, it was a step in my mind uh, toward reversing some of what uh, President Ford argued in, in 1974. And you are dealing with a former president who, more than any other president I can certainly think of, ignored any sense of limitations on what he could do uh, before he was president uh, and as president. And um, now there's a reckoning of this. Again, we don't know how the case will unfold, but the fact the case is happening, the fact that um, Alvin Bragg is saying, uh, we are still moving forward with this, regardless of, of who this person is politically and all the ramifications, I think is very significant historically. And, um, and it will be especially interesting as it combines with the other issues out there. Mm -hmm. Yes, definitely. Did you want to add anything, Kevin? No, just to stress that last point is that is that this indictment is the first of, I think, several to come. I mean, uh, I don't think we've wrapped our heads around the fact that the former president's going to be the, the defendant in a rape trial mm -hmm. uh, in, a, in a month. Uh, he's also got the Georgia um, uh, uh, election meddling case coming up. He's got a lot uh, coming up. Uh, but I think these indictments, a lot of people said this is a sad day for America. I think it's not a sad day. I think it's, I mean, it's sad that we got here, but the fact that uh, the president committed the crimes, apparently, allegedly, is, uh, is is the reason we got here, not the fact that anyone held him accountable for this. Mm -hmm. And so maybe we can finally come full circle and undo that mistake that was done with Nixon's pardon, um, you know, where Nixon uh, uh, acted above the law and future presidents decided that they were. Uh, maybe this will finally uh, rein them back in. We'll see. Well, here's hoping. Mm -hmm. So uh, a lot of uh, especially left-leaning historians are frequently criticized, especially now, of being too political. But is history inherently political? Yeah, it's an, there's the idea that historians should be walled off as some kind of, you know, uh, apolitical, uninvolved, you know, reader of the text, the sacred text, and not be engaged in the present is is nonsense. Historians from across the political spectrum, from the far left to the right, uh, have been engaged in politics and tried to bring uh, what they've uh, they found to bear. And, and I think that's a, that's always been that way and it's always been good. Look, the thing, the thing that's important, I, I have no problem with liberal, conservative, progressive, whatever uh, historian you're talking about 
having political positions or connecting what they've learned about history uh, to making arguments about politics. But our book, uh, Myth America, in my mind, is the, the, the warning is, is skewing the history to make those political arguments. And, and if I see that, I'm as critical as whoever you are politically. Yeah. I think that's where you get in a dangerous place. But it's natural that if you study history, if you're a kind of student of civil rights, for example, and have spent a career, I'm thinking of Eric Foner, for example, at Columbia, um, studying the history of race relations and the history of the suppression of racial justice. When it comes to today, and these issues are on the table, what's happening with restrictions on voting rights or what's happening in the criminal justice system, it, it's it's legitimate, it's logical that you'll be sympathetic uh, to arguments combating that because of what you've learned about the past. But that learning was grounded in all the traditional techniques that we've discussed, research in archives, reading of other scholars. And then you reach that point, of course, you're a human, you have positions, and it's natural because that's how you see what the country is about. But what 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 I think we're trying to say you can't do is just make stuff up or ignore. It's not even if you don't make it up, just ignore what we know and say, well, I'm going to just put forward this argument and it supports my political position. But history is political. Historians are going to have uh, positions on in this issue. And I and the argument, it's just uh, progressive historians who do this. Come on. Uh, the people making that argument are usually intensely political, and they're actually using this idea of a kind of progressive takeover of universities and high schools and elementary schools as a very pointed agenda. Um, so I, I think we always have to remember where that's all coming from. And uh, just to example, Florida, if you really want to understand what that's about. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. I, I wanted to ask you what you guys thought about that, uh, you know, removing sort of certain historical subjects even from from these programs, especially in colleges. It's out, I mean, it's outrageous and uh, it, it shows a lack of respect for history. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it's clearly a partisan uh, agenda. Some of it, uh, there are people who I think legitimately don't want those books, not legitimately, but they actually don't want the books in the classroom. Let me put it that way. And there's others who I think don't actually care about the subject matter books. It's just a great political issue. It's a mobilizing issue and it's hard to discern, you know, who's being driven by which uh, factor, but it's terrible. And uh, we're not talking in most cases about things that are particularly controversial. It's a little like, uh, as Kevin was talking about the Southern strategy, these are uh, issues that have been very important in American politics. There's not much disagreement. I can't think of any historian I know who would say we shouldn't have very substantive classroom uh, pedagogy on issues from slavery uh, to Jim Crow laws to uh, those who led the fight uh, for civil rights. And the idea you would take this out of the classroom uh, or ignore some of the issues connected to this subject. I, I don't even understand anyone who could defend that uh, on any logical grounds. And it's it's terrible. We often say if you respect the nation, if you're if you're really patriotic, you'll understand the nation, its flaws, its its virtues, its complexities. Um, the people who don't respect the country, in my mind, the people who are not being patriotic only will hear one version of what the country is about, only will hear one set of stories 
that's not respecting, it's disrespecting um, what a country is because it's a simplistic way of looking at the past. And it, it obviously undermines the education the next generation will have. And so I think it's important that there's pushback against this. Mm, yes, beautifully said, my goodness. Uh, Kevin, did you have anything you want to add? No, that nailed it. Yeah, perfect. Mic drop. I love it. All right. <laughs> so on this show, we've talked a lot about the dangers of what we are calling toxic nostalgia, this sort of yearning for an idealized past that never existed. So why do you think the good old days appeal to so many people and how can we challenge it? The good old days appeal to people because they think they were good. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you're fed a fairy tale in which everything was wonderful and magical back then, and everything around you seems chaotic and crappy, of course you're going to long for that, right? That's the that's the problem with nostalgia, is it's not a, a true picture of the past. Uh, I find, and I talk to colleagues who, who teach different eras too, our students are kind of delighted to discover that past eras, which have been presented to them as this kind of peaceful land in which everyone got along and everyone was happy, are just as conflicted and full of chaos and turmoil uh, as our own time. Uh, maybe not every year is as, as bad as, as a kind of a pandemic and insurrection era, but there have been times in the past, right? And there's a there's a way in which you can gain a certain optimism out of that a realization of, of how bad things have been before that we've been through tough times. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think there's a there's a strength in in realizing uh, that when when politicians may make a, a pitch to make America great again, uh, the, the, the great era they're longing for didn't really exist, right? It's like everything. Uh, there's different things going on. I think sometimes this too is very pointed. You remember a nostalgia. You have a nostalgia about the past just to make an argument that things stink today. And the things that stink can often be, uh, in, in, a, in the way a person's describing it, very particular um, you know, political issues. We discussed immigration earlier, and it's always just amazing, even if totally predictable, to hear people whose own families come from immigrant backgrounds, as we said, attacking what immigration is and what it does to the country. That nostalgia is really just a way um, to legitimate certain political positions. Sometimes I think it comes out of genuine just fears, like, you know, we were living in a pandemic, I'm sure, Many people just wanted to know we we can live without this. And there was times when this kind of stuff didn't happen. And uh, there's a certain comfort, it's like comfort food, uh, even if it, it it's not true. I don't think that's the best way to think of things or solve things, um, but but that's how it, it, it often uh, happens. And then look, part of it comes from an ignorance of history. And uh, that includes professional historians too. And we're often learning we were totally wrong on how we, um, thought of, of periods and were pushed to think in more uh, sophisticated terms about how the past un unfolded. But that's exactly uh, what history often does. It, it uh, undermines and dismantles some of that nostalgia, which is just image and uh, uh, often false memory with, with truth, um, with realistically argued and grounded understandings of what happened. And, and we might come away with something that's not quite as pleasant and some of that nostalgia quickly fades away, but we also come out of it with a much more accurate understanding, not only of what happened in the past, but of who we are today. Beautiful. 
So you have both published multiple books and articles, and you're very active on Twitter. Where is the best place for us to find more about you and your work? Wherever books are sold. Uh, I mean, turn on your TV. Julian's probably on there right now uh, or on the radio. Uh, you'll find him on, on some broadcast this moment. Uh, we're, we're both on Twitter. We're both uh, active. Um, uh, you'll have trouble not finding us. That's what we like to hear. And uh, and your Twitter is uh, particularly interesting. I was just getting into your uh, chronological history threads yesterday. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was really enjoying those. I I'm sure our listeners will as well. And uh, anything you wanted to add, Julian? I'll turn on my TV and see you in a second. <laughs> yeah, no, those are the places. I also write a column for CNN every week, and you can hear some of my thoughts there. But uh, in the end, you know, you, you can find us uh, trying to teach in the classroom and uh, write our books and um, we're around and we're honored I think both of us and happy to keep contributing to these important debates as they unfold. Beautiful well thank you so much I, I really I can't thank you enough this has been so fascinating. Thank you thanks for having us. Once again I'd like to thank Dr. Kevin Cruz and Dr. Julian Zelizer for stopping by. Their new book is New York Times bestseller, Myth America, Historians Take on the Biggest Legends and Lies About Our Past, and it's out now. You can find them on Twitter at Kevin M. Cruz and at Julian Zelizer. Although this is the last episode of Season 2, we'll be back in two weeks as usual with the start of Season 3 on May 10th. We have some really exciting episodes planned and some truly fabulous guests, covering everything from pirates and ghosts to bootleggers and birth control. This is going to be our best season yet, and we can't wait to share it with you. And thank you, as always, to our brilliant patrons on Patreon. Big hugs and so much gratitude to Melanie Baker, Michael Beckwith, Bethany Bennett, Andy Christopher, Charlotte Collings, Rachel Cooney, Ayana DaCosta, Michelle Dunbar, Alexis Diamond, James Finch, Brian Fullerton, Adriana Herrera, Howard David Ingham, Emma Young, Miriam Caceres, Janine Meberg, Jessica Miller, Lizzie Ortmeyer, Shannon Roth, Icy Sedgwick, Catherine Rowley-Williams, and Denny White. Thank you all so much. If you would like to support the show and check out our bonus episodes, you can find us on patreon.com slash dirtysexyhistory. As always, there are other ways to support the show as well. You can rate, review, and subscribe, or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or even Mastodon at Dirty Sexy History. You can also check out our seven years of archives on our website at DirtySexyHistory.com and find links to our guests and our online merch store there as well. There's a lot of great stuff up there and some new articles too, so do stop by and say hello. Thank you so much for supporting us through another great season. We can't wait to start the next one. See you next time.